Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. Oregon State coach Jonathan Smith will be joining us in the 5 o'clock hour, the happy hour, once you hear for it. T.J. Matheson has uh, been in and around the Oregon State camp all season long. You can read his work at 750thegame.com as our insider. He's joining us now to talk about the Beavers. All right, your rapid reaction when you saw the Beavers at 16 in the college football playoff rankings, T.J., about where they should be or were you surprised? That's where they should be, and I think Vegas, If you, I mean, look at commute, computer models and such like that. I think they would also agree that the Beavers should be right around that spot. We, when we look down at Saturday's loss, it, it, you look at it. They, they of course, lost to, to Arizona, a very hot team. But you don't come away thinking that the Beavers are some team that's now significantly worse than Arizona. I don't think that's the case. There's a few things here and there that you can nitpick. And those things that you do nitpick do drop them from 11 in the AP poll to now 16 in the college football playoff. But it, it seemed about accurate, and I think most people agree. And it, it would also be shown that there's still a lot ahead for this team coming up here in the, the coming weeks. Important game at Colorado. Always curious out of a loss how Oregon State or any other team will react. Do you have a sense of what this team will be like coming off of a disappointing loss at Arizona? I have a sense that they need to make sure they don't show some sort of fatal flaw or crux on the road. I feel like, John, in every game, road game in the Pac-12 this season they played, they have shown something that could lose them a game. And when they come home to Research Stadium, that's not really the case. And that's got to be frustrating for the players. That's got to be frustrating for the coaching staff. So when you look at this late-night game on Saturday, you look at it and say, okay, well, we have probably the biggest advantage we have had in the trenches all season outside of an FCS game against UC Davis, we can't let anything else disrupt that. I mean, you can't let turnovers disrupt that. You can't let uh, more poor quarterback play disrupt that. You can't let penalties disrupt that. When you have such an advantage as a two-touchdown favorite on the road, there's something that you know you shouldn't do. Otherwise, I would expect the energy to be pretty high, and this team can constantly just echoing echoing the week-to-week message to take Sunday and flush it and then move on to the next, and that's what I expect we'll see. Jonathan Smith said the decision to try the fake field goal at the end of the first half was a bad call. It, does this haunt him all season, or do you take this? You take the good with the bad knowing that some of that aggression has been part of the success at Oregon State? It might haunt people if they, they go ahead and win out and – uh, the tiebreakers work out, make their way into the championship, and, and somehow win a Pac-12 championship. Because you would think you'd think back to the the this past weekend in Tucson, and a three-point difference was the difference between a tie at the end of regulation and winning at, uh, and losing at the end of regulation. So, for some some people thought that this team could potentially be a dark horse playoff contender. If that's really what you thought and what you expected, and some person listening to this is one of the more people down this week because of Saturday's result. Well, then if the results play out, as I just mentioned, then it, then it will hang a, a dark cloud of what you would have from Jonathan Smith. I'm sure he would make some 
decisions that people would love down the stretch if they're going to go ahead and go beat probably they probably have to beat three top ten teams in a row to go pull off that feat. But it, it, so if your expectation at the end of the season was higher than just a Pac-12 championship, which I think realistically was for some people, then I think it absolutely hangs over some people's heads. Maybe not Jonathan's, maybe not the players, but certainly for people watching and people who want to see this program uh, achieve as much as they can. Right now, uh, DJ Uyunglele, I mean, he's playing all right. I think he's been okay. But I am, uh, I'm watching him slowly process on the field. Um, he still may, you know, he might be the last person sometimes to see that the play's not there or is there. It's just, it's really strange to watch him process during a pass play in particular. Or when he decides to tuck the ball and run, he's just a half a second too late. And he gets... He gets taken down by a defensive lineman. You, you know, we can all see it on television a little before him. Or the broadcaster's going, he's got a guy deep, you know, and he he doesn't see it. Uh, what do you see happening with DJ? Uh, and and how happy or unhappy should Oregon State fans be with the quarterback play right now? I think they should be happy with it, but I think we can also acknowledge that maybe a bit of the game plan on Saturday wasn't great. They did try to throw the ball downfield a lot. There was a lot of those longer developing routes that – when DJ has an off night like he had on Saturday night, he's inaccurate, completes just 16 of 30 passes, then that's going to screw up your sequencing of downs, even if the Beavers are having a successful running night. And they did, on average, on a per, per rush average, had a good rushing night on Saturday. But they didn't really have the volume of it. And when you're going out there on second down and seven or first down and ten and you're trying to get a play-action pass for 25 yards and DJ is a little inaccurate, he misses a read, there's a guy running open downfield that he doesn't see, and, and he has to throw the ball away. Well, that you know throws off the whole rhythm of the offense, and then DJ's really behind the sticks, and then the mistakes really start to pile up. We have, I mean, we've seen good. I think still DJ, if we're, if we're talking about trends, he's still on the upward trend as a quarterback because after the bye, I mean, before the bye, it was his two best weeks as an Oregon State quarterback. He played very well against a very good UCLA defense who, dominated the Buffaloes last week at the Rose Bowl and then had one of the best passing performances in Oregon State history against California. So I don't think we can sort of just ignore that when we're talking in context of what we see from DJ. I, I, I think it's a mix of you know him missing some opportunities and then I think some bad sequencing compiles on top of that and, and leads to an underwhelming offensive performance. Aiden Childs, will we see more of him as this season unfolds, meaning as, you know, you mentioned the ranked teams that they'll encounter. I just sort of wonder if Oregon State hands the keys to the future at some point or maybe, um, you know, blends him in a little more, more than a series here or there. What do you expect with Aiden Giles? We're going to keep seeing him. I, my biggest question is, are they going to put him in when the Beavers are down? And the answer is, yes, they did. They put him in against the Wildcats when the Beavers were or down in the in the football game in the first half, and he still went down there and scored some points. I've I've no reason to believe they would stop playing him. I I, I think in this world of uh, of NIL and promises they kept to Aiden that they want to keep playing him. Part of the the reason Aiden Childs decided to come to Oregon State was, you know, they they said they're we're seriously considering playing you no matter what, no matter who our quarterback is, doesn't matter if DJ's here doesn't matter if DJ's going to start the season. We're going to still play you. And he talked about that when we finally got to talk to him last week. Very thankful for the Oregon State communication staff making a true freshman quarterback available. But they, they did for Aiden Childs last week. And 
he specifically said he's like Jonathan Smith was real with me that I'm going to play if I if I earned it and it sounds like you know he has earned it and, and the results on the field showing that he has earned it and he's he's capable of making plays. I'm 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 just when we get down to the nitty gritty of the season and it's a top ten Washington team and a top ten Oregon team to finish the season. They still want do they still want him out there? Do they want him with the rhythm of the offense? Do they want if DJ has a good first drive, a good first two drives? Take DJ out for what it would probably be six, seven minutes of game time, given the drive on the other opponent's side and the drive on your side, and is that going to throw the offense off rhythm? I mean, that's a decision for the coaching staff to make. But from everything we've seen, he's going to keep playing, and I don't see a reason why he would stop playing. We're talking to TJ Matheson. He is our insider at 750thegame.com. You can read his insights. What do you expect for the Colorado game? Uh, Oregon State has not been good on the road. Colorado has uh, been really shaky, clunky, however you want to put it. What are what are your expectations on Saturday night in Boulder? First up, avoid mistakes, as, as I mentioned earlier. But second, they're, they're going to have such an advantage along the line of scrimmage, especially while the Beaver offense is on the field and the Colorado defense is on the field. The Colorado defense, their, their strength is, is getting turnovers. But outside of that, I mean, the Beavers line up and just hammer the football. We, we haven't seen them really hammer the football consistently against a, a, a team in, in a couple of weeks. So now that we're finally, the Beavers finally see what the weakness of that defense is. Keep the ball away from Travis Hunter on the outside. He made a couple of amazing plays against UCLA in the Rose Bowl last week. Keep the ball away from him. Run the ball 60% of the time. I, I, I think that would do it. I think even if Jake Levengood is questionable this week, it didn't sound too great when Jonathan talked about him on Monday. Tanner Miller's done a good job, though. They're at center, even with some injuries on the offensive line. The Beavers just run up and run the football right at Colorado. They should have a ton of success, and, and it beautifully counters the the other side of the football where Colorado cannot run the football. They don't have a great offensive line. Sadur Shanders is, uh, has been the most sacked quarterback in college football, and the Beavers' defensive line has been really good at getting pressure this year, so they can – force them in completions. They get them on the ground a few times. They throw the Colorado offense out of sync as well. They get some shorter drives, and all of a sudden, the time of possession starts adding up, and the Beavers can really milk this game away with some of the really explosive playmakers on offense. I, I, I don't see any reason why the Beavers should lose this game, given the trenches, and when you have an advantage this significant, you should take care of business. All right, TJ, I appreciate your work on the Beavers. We'll have you on next week. There's TJ Matthewson. You can read his work at 750thegame.com. Oregon State's got to win at Boulder. You you can't, with a straight face, say that, hey, you let one get away in Tucson. Oh, you let one get away in Washington uh, at Pullman. You can't do that again for a third time this season. This team has to win road games. It has to show what it know, that it knows what to do on the road. And if you're going to give your fan base and the rest of the country – any kind of um, supporting evidence for you being number 16 in the college football playoff rankings, you do that by going to Boulder and running the football down Colorado's throat. They haven't stopped anybody on the ground this season. We got our big splash coming up, a little bit of breaking news. Bobby Knight, the uh, former Indiana University and Texas Tech University coach, has passed away at the age of 83. I covered Knight in the late 1990s. He uh, was never boring. He was a controversial, polarizing figure, undoubtedly a winner, uh, and a guy who was one of the great teachers in the game of college basketball. Our big splash is coming up.
Well, Bobby Knight passed away at the age of 83 today, according to his family. Um, the uh, release going out on social media. I covered Bob Knight as a beat reporter in 1998 in the 98-99 basketball season. Um, I uh, remember going out to Indiana. I knew nothing about the state of Indiana when I took that job, and I remember... Uh, you know, I was working at the Santa Cruz Sentinel at the time. I was covering high school basketball, a little bit of community college. I would occasionally get to go cover an NFL game or a Major League Baseball game. But by and large, it was a big step up for me to cover a college beat full time and especially to be on a program like Indiana Basketball. And I had the fortune of um, the high school coach at the local high school at Santa Cruz High School at the time happened to be Pete Newell, Jr., that's right. It's the son of Pete Newell Sr., who was Bobby Knight's mentor. And so the Newell family knew Bob Knight like uh, like he was a son in that family. And so it was really interesting to have that experience and have that knowledge of him prior to going out there to cover that team. And it was really interesting to me to um, to go to Big Ten Media Day for the first time in 1990, uh, 1998, I believe it was must have been like no, you know, October of 1998, September of 1998, whenever they had held Big Ten Media Day. I remember it was at the United Center in Chicago, and I, on my way out there, I had read the book Season on the Brink, the John Feinstein book about the Indiana basketball team in 1976-77 that won the national championship, and I had, you know, just this amazing idea in my mind of what it was going to be like to cover a personality like Bobby Knight. And a lot of it delivered. Like, he was never dull. He was never boring. Every time you had your microphone on, I have a bunch of cassette tapes and a box in my garage of all these interviews that I did with Knight in group settings, one-on-one, two interviewers, (laughs) times when he was in a good mood, times when he was in a bad mood, times when he was in a mood where he was eager to teach the writers. I can remember one time after game, they... They had uh, defeated a team in overtime. They beat Temple in overtime. It was a really good Temple team coached by John Chaney. And A.J. Guyton, who was 0 for 10 in uh, in regulation from behind the arc, hit a three-point shot in the extra period to beat Temple. And I can remember in the post-game news conference, you know, you never knew if Bobby Knight was going to be in a good mood or a bad mood when he came into that news conference. And if he was in a bad mood, you'd figure it out immediately. Like, he could walk into the news conference. He would say, as he was walking to the podium, anybody got a question? And you would look up from, you know, your your spot in the media room, and Knight was already leaving the room. Like, he did that one time in a news conference. Anybody got a question? I looked up, he was leaving the room. Uh, basically, you know, not in a good mood today. But there was a after that game that they beat Temple in Knight came to the post game and he was in rare form he was just it was an early game i think that put him in a good mood naturally they won in overtime they showed some resilience skyton uh played through a bad a brutal stretch of shooting and hit a big shot and indiana won and uh in the post game news conference i asked him you know what were you trying to get on that last play and he had all the riders in the room clear the space in front of the podium He took five sports writers. He gave them each a job and said, okay, your job is you're the inbounder. This is what you're looking for. 
This is uh, this is the pass we want to make. This is our option one pass. Our option two pass is this. And then he took another writer and said, your job is you're a decoy. You're just going to be over here in the corner. You're going to be uh, ask, demanding the ball, asking the ball, make the defense respect you. Took another reporter and said, hey, you're going to be setting a screen, and here's how, and here's what you're looking for. Here's what happens if the defense does this. And he taught in that moment. And in that moment, like I could see why he had had success in college basketball and why he probably demanded the kind of player who was willing to be coached, who was willing to listen, who was willing to pay attention, and uh, who didn't need to be told things twice. It's it's really the kind of player that thrived under Bobby Knight. You know, Michael Jordan and that athleticism, sure, he could have played for anybody, but I don't know if Michael Jordan in college would have been quite as creative and free-flowing as he was at North Carolina. Even I think he was restricted at Carolina to some respect, but Knight wanted his guys to play within the system and play within themselves. You know, he could not stand mental errors. He could not stand an error that a player made that a player repeated. He had a particular frustration if he talked about something. I, you know, on those days in press row, you could be right by the huddle, and you could hear him talking, and you could hear him tell a player, don't let them drive the baseline. And if the player then, you know, gave the baseline up, uh, he'd, he'd go ballistic. I, I remember one time, and Stephen, you might be able to relate to this as a basketball guy, the opposing team was in a zone defense, and Knight told Antoine Randall who went on to play in the NFL, he told him, quit dribbling the ball down the middle of the court. I want you to dribble to the right side or the left side of the key. Make the defense move. Like, don't just dribble right, you know, and they inbounded the ball, and Randall L. dribbled right down the middle. Knight called timeout and yanked him, like, right away. You're not listening. Get out of the game. I have no place for that. And so he could be really difficult in those settings, but I saw in that moment after the win over Temple, like, how great he could be. He was a teacher. And and I also saw something that surprised me because, I, like you, I'd seen all the clips of Bobby Knight throwing the chair, Bobby Knight getting a technical foul. Bobby Knight getting thrown out of the game. Bobby Knight in the news conference. And what I encountered was a different character. Sure, those things happened, you know, in his past. And sure, during my season, I saw him throw a clipboard once. I saw him stomp his feet a couple of times. But a lot of other times I saw him teaching. I saw him relating to players. And I saw something that really shocked me. I saw his former players show up to the Indiana home games in droves and wear their letterman's jackets, and sit in the crowd, and after the game, all they wanted to do was high-five him and tell him how much he meant to them. And, you know, there were a lot of guys who I think got a lot out of playing for him. Now, I think today's world probably wasn't made for him. Name, image, likeness in the transfer portal. He would have had guys leaving and leaving and leaving. It would have been difficult for him to build any kind of continuity because you'd have had players who didn't like what he was telling them, didn't like the constructive criticism, who would over and over probably bail out of the program. But I think he found guys who could play for him and won at a high level. He was the winningest coach to the Big Ten Conference in the 1970s, in the 1980s, and the 1990s. Three decades, he won more games than anybody else in each decade. And that, I think, is uh, really something to something to say when you when you look at you know, the way that Bobby Knight delivered as a uh, college basketball coach. There certainly was a place for him in the game. And I think, too, like, you know, 
I went to cover Jerry Tarkanian after I had covered Bobby Knight, and it was a shock to my system to go from ultra-disciplined, station-to-station, play within yourself, don't turn the ball over, don't make mistakes, exploit the defense's weaknesses, be smarter than the other team, to a system under Jerry Tarkanian that was very free-flowing, very creative. Tark would get into the huddle and he would tell his guys, rebound. And then they break the huddle. You know, Bobby Knight was in there going, here's the play, here's what we're running, and he's diagramming it, and he's expecting everybody to see it the way he sees it because he had seen it for 40 years. And, frankly, he was a guy who came up at West Point alongside uh, Mike Krzyzewski, and they had that kind of, uh, you know, experience and respect and command of the game. Um, certainly, though, I think he went sideways after I left. Uh, I remember 1998-99, I was not surprised after that that he had the run-in with the student on campus there were things that he was doing that, you know, were not tolerated, shouldn't be tolerated. You never should put your hands on a player, shouldn't put your hands on a kid on the campus. Um, ultimately, I think um, it was kind of an eye-opener to see that here was a guy who belonged in college basketball for all those years in the 70s, 80s, 90s that really struggled late in his career to uh, as he was aging as well to to with how the game and how kids frankly were changing he's you know hall of fame coach you know you look at his national championships you look at an undefeated season you you look at you know all the success stories that he has had with players and you you say hey he won a lot more than he lost but clearly one of the uh, polarizing figures in college basketball and uh, frankly, our big splash without playing the benchmark today is the death of Bobby Knight at the age of 83. Now, I go to Big Ten Media Day at the United Center in 1998, and Pete Newell Sr. had talked to me on the phone prior to me going out to Media Day. I'd never met Bobby Knight. I didn't know what to expect. i got to be honest with you, I was a little intimidated going into those news conferences, that big news conference, the United Center, and all these national reporters there, and here I was, brand new on the beat, Bobby Knight's on the podium, and Pete Newell Sr. told me, he says, hey, I'm going to tell Bobby that you're coming out to cover his team. And he says, you're not going to get any favors from Bobby, but, you know, the fact that you know me, you know my kid, it's, uh, it'll, it'll go a long way towards, you know, at least your initial relationship with Bobby, maybe establishing some rapport. And so Pete Newell Sr. told me, when you go to media day, I want you to get on the microphone or raise your hand and ask Bobby, can you win in today's game with a back-to-the-basket center? He says, then he's going to know that's you. That's the guy that knows the Newell family, and, that, and he's going to identify, that's you. Okay, I, I know you. So I, sure enough, I got the microphone at Media Day in Chicago, and I said, Coach Knight, uh, can you win in today's game with a back-to-the-basket center? I barely got it out, you know. And Knight said, looks at me. There's this moment of realization or recognition, and then he says, well, gosh darn it. He goes, you didn't come up with that question yourself. There's no way a reporter could come to this news conference with such a good beep-a-dee-beep question. And he said, you must have got help with that. That's it. And he went on for four or five minutes explaining that no reporter in their right mind would be smart enough to ask that question, that it had to have come from somewhere else. And only he and I knew that it came from his mentor, um, you know, obviously Pete Newell Sr., uh, Bobby Knight, dead at the age of 83. All right, coming up, we get 4 o'clock hour. We'll play some Punch It audio. Uh, 5 o'clock hour, Jonathan Smith. Or- <laughs>
We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face hey, Sorry Truth. to interrupt the podcast, but if you want to listen to more of the Bald Face Truth Radio Show, including more of this segment that you're listening to, make sure you subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes to the Bald Face Truth Radio Show. Thanks for listening.